Just hang on. I'm gonna start the landing cycle. We start things off where Luke is in his X-Wing and he's going down into the Dagobah system and there's a lot of fog and he crashes his X-Wing right into a swamp. Immediately crashes into a swamp, kind of climbs out, looks around, says, this place is kind of like a dream. How bizarre. And who should come along but a weird sea creature? The thing kind of swallows up R2 and then spits him back out. <laughs> yeah, he really does. So Luke sets up a camp basically outside after kind of looking over at R2 and seeing that he's covered in essentially swamp puke. Yep. And uh, this little green creature just appears behind him because he feels like he's being watched. Mm. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, back on the uh, on the Millennium Falcon where our other heroes, uh, Han and Leia and 3PO and Chewie, are hiding in what they thought was a cave at the last 20. They ducked to get away from all of the the Imperial uh, starfighters that were following them. Mm -hmm. uh, they've hidden themselves in a cave and uh, there's another very romantically tense moment between Han and Leia. It actually oh, yeah. actually results in them kissing, but then they're cock-blocked by 3PO, who realizes he knows what's wrong with the Falcon. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so Luke is um, taken to meet this Yoda character. The green creature knows Yoda, and he says, we need to eat first, but then I'll meet, take you to Yoda. Uh, and then this little green creature gets pretty impatient because... Luke is pretty impatient, and yeah. he's just says, just basically talks up to the sky and says, "I can't train him." And we learn that this little green creature is Yoda. Alone in the cockpit, Leia notices some motion outside the windows of the Falcon. She realizes there's probably something alive out there. So everybody kind of puts on a gas mask. They go out to check it out. Uh, there's this weird, like bat creatures flying around, and they suddenly all realize that this is some kind of organic matter they've landed on, landed on, and this is probably not a cave. Exactly. And so from there, uh, Han, Leia, and Chewie, and 3PO, they blast off outside of what ends up being a giant space slug. Yep. And they go off into back into the asteroid field. Uh, and while back on Dagobah, uh, Luke uh, is starting to get trained by Yoda after Yoda eventually caves to uh, Obi-Wan's voice. <laughs> right. There's also this little banter with the disembodied voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, who yeah. kind of makes a case for Luke as not necessarily too old to train mm -hmm. and not necessarily any more impatient or filled with fear than say he was, which by the way, is my first sticking point with this 20. I figured. Obi-Wan, he even says like, was I any different when you trained me? And I shouted out loud, yes! <laughs> <laughs> you were entirely different. You were completely submissive to Yoda. You were a little talkbacky to Qui-Gon, but you were, for the most part, a pretty by-the-book Jedi, Ben. He was, but once he became a Jedi, it very much was the case where the Obi-Wan we see in The Phantom Menace, it, it's more of an established Obi-Wan. Now, we don't really, I don't think we have anything canon specifically for young Obi-Wan. We might. You mean like boy Obi-Wan? Boy Obi-Wan, yeah. yeah. There might be some canon stuff out there. I know that there was a lot of legend stuff, and he was a bit of a bit of a, a, bit of a hothead. Okay. Uh, but at the same time, not that talented, but a very, very hard worker. And the very hard right. worker thing has kind of persisted as that Obi-Wan became an exceptional swordsman purely because he worked hard, whereas yeah. he may not have been as overly connected to the Force as, say, some of the other Jedi were. Well, and he cares the most. Exactly. Which, ultimately, with the Force, matters the most. Yep, it really does. He believes in it, and he stays true to it consistently. 
but yeah, so it, this is one that maybe doesn't really align so much anymore, but I think at a time, Legends worked it out, and we don't know enough to see what Obi-Wan was like when Yoda trained him. Phantom Menace Obi-Wan is only stubborn in that he's youthful and he questions everything. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, oh, Yoda would have trained Obi-Wan when he was, like, 12. He could yeah. have been a total bastard when he True. was young, and then he had to go be under Qui-Gon's tutelage because Qui-Gon was, you know, kind of a rogue badass. Does Yoda understand as soon as Luke lands what's going on? Yes. He knows right away this is Luke Skywalker. This is the child of Anakin Skywalker. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I guess he doesn't, Luke doesn't really even introduce himself, and he just kind of knows. Well, he's, how do you know my father? Like, you don't even know who I am. Right. Why wish you become Jedi? (laughs) Mostly because of my father, I guess. Uh, Father? How for Jedi was he? (laughs) How for Jedi? Oh, come on. How could you know my father? You don't even know who I am. Uh, And it's just like, well, Yoda knows all. He does know everything. Now, uh, a lot can be said in hindsight about how silly Yoda is in his first appearance in the saga. And it's kind of charming, but it never really resurfaces that way. It's really the only time in many movies that he's appeared. And he's only like that until you realize he's Yoda. Right. It's purely done it's put for... In, he's the, putting on a character? Well, yes, he is, I guess. But the only reason it's done that way is to trick the viewer. <laughs> right. It's so that the viewer sees it as this like crazy little creature that ends up becoming the wise old sage to, tra- to train you. Which uh, is, I guess it's like a Kurosawa thing, or it's like, it's old. Uh, it's what it's the reason why a lot of people theorize that Jar Jar was supposed to be a Sith. Right, it's supposed to be a throw-off. It's supposed to be the throw-off. The annoying little weird alien end up, ends up being something so much more. But he's only annoying for five minutes before we realize he is, in fact, Yoda. Well, we also remember that George Lucas made a lot of huge errors trying to make things parallel between the prequels and originals True. that really just didn't line up i really noticed how much yoda sounds like miss piggy in this movie awake with your weapon i mean you no harm i am wondering why are you here uh well that's actually really funny uh because apparently frank oz would bring miss piggy on set because mark hamill was struggling with the dagobah scenes yeah he was just struggling i guess talking to a puppet yeah and so he would get frustrated by it and so frank oz brought miss piggy to lighten the mood (laughs) that's so cute that's really quite funny yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing frank oz is a fascinating dude i feel like he doesn't get enough credit yeah as like one of the great puppet actors of all time Oh, absolutely jim henson was the one who was offered the role first oh weird. yeah i know and then recommended frank oz for the role i wonder why he didn't want to do it um I don't know. It's a good question. But apparently George Lucas also pushed really hard. Like he like fully ran a campaign to try and get Frank Oz nominated for Best Supporting Actor that year. For Yoda? For Yoda, yeah. Wow. And they eventually said, no, he doesn't qual- He doesn't qualify because it's, it's just voice acting and puppeteering screen as time, opposed yeah. to being... Well, no, screen time wouldn't have been an issue it because prob- of like Silence of the Lambs, for example. I get, but he was on screen. Anthony Hopkins did appear on screen. I see what you mean in terms of the fact that Frank Oz never yeah. specifically is on screen. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. It's like you said, it's voice acting. It's just kind of a whole other skill set, and it's enormous, but I would yeah. liken it to the modern day Andy Serkis definitely deserves some kind of honorary Academy Award at this point because of what he's done for motion capture in film. And there's enough mocap things in modern cinema that there could be a category now there, at the Oscars. There should be. Yeah. I completely agree. Uh, and it's one that, yeah, Andy Serkis will become one of the most decorated people in Oscars history very fast. But 
I don't think anyone's going to complain about that because Andy Serkis is fucking incredible at what he does. And it's a craft, and he's one of the pioneers. And so what if he lights it up for a few years? If Potentially, it just could mean there'd be more people who could go down and pursue that kind of road of acting. I actually think we're past the time where he would have lit it up. Because like now there's all of these major movie stars doing it. Josh Brolin just did it for yeah. Thanos. And uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has done it. I mean, uh, Lupita Nyong'o did it for Force Awakens. It's it's, it's a couple of times a year. True, but it's still Andy Serkis's, like category. Oh, he's the best. Yeah. He's no. the best of all time. But there's enough of it now. It's and and like I agree. puppet acting is not common enough in in regular movies or in movies in general for there to be any more than like one guy. Yeah, no. And, and the interesting thing, like I, I think, like Frank Oz should have qualified, and maybe he did, and he just didn't get enough of the votes. But from what I read, it looked like he didn't qualify. I mean, it's tough. There's only like five. Yeah five different slots for best supporting actor or whatever it is that's true i wanted to talk about this trope that i'm noticing in the original star wars movies of the haunting looming creature from the black lagoon which seems to be a thing that george lucas or 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 just star wars in general really liked to utilize in those first movies and there's a little bit of that in phantom menace as well with there's always a bigger fish this sudden realization that there's this creature in the scene that either you knew about and the characters didn't know about or even you didn't know about. Mm. And so it exists uh, doubly with the giant space slug and also the, the creature swamp sw- swimming under under the swamp and it exists in the trash compactor. Uh, and then ever since, I guess, Phantom Menace, I can't think of a time where they've used that, um, that device of suspense in Star Wars. That's a really good point. Yeah. That might be something that really is missing. Like, that's like a, like a classic original trilogy element that they've used really a lot in these first two movies yeah they have that's a good i've, I've never really picked up on that that's a really good point that's it's just what, jj bring it back well it's a smart way to kind of instigate um action in a new Definitely. universe like so you're in this this space that is kind of compelling but ultimately it's just characters being confused mm. well we need to we need to see some urgency in these characters so let's put something slimy below their feet yeah well they had the what are they called rat tires in the force awakens yeah, that's kind of a good example, I except just, for that they were there, like they were in cages. That's also, in my opinion, the worst scene in The Force Awakens. I always forget about it. I've seen it's that such movie, a waste. I've seen that movie seven times, and every single time it, the scene starts, and I'm like, oh, yeah. That, that and Canto Captain Bite. Solo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the hardcore accent. Who are those guys? I mean, they're just other uh Well, that's pirates. actually, I don't remember what it's from, but that's a crossover from something really yeah like it's the same sort of like actors uh i don't know whether they're playing the same characters or not but it's crossover from something uh i don't know what it is though uh so let's talk about the way luke phrases his uh his reading of dagobah at first when he's talking to r2 and he's kind of looking around i mentioned in the recap he says it's kind of like a dream Hmm. um which is confusing except it kind of makes you wonder, has Luke had force dreams about Dagobah? Oh, that's interesting. And then later he says even more directly, still there's something familiar about this place. And that's when he says, it almost feels like someone's watching you. And that, yeah. that's when Yoda turns up. Yeah. The way, the way I interpret that is the force nexus element. It's the fact that he's reading the force. He's reading the force and it's just so strong there that it just, it, it almost makes the place seem 
like unnatural. It's because it, it does have an extra power. Yes. And we do see the fact that he goes into a cave and has visions. And so the place kind of as an overall is a dream. Right. Uh, and I know there's lots of discussion as to like how much time Luke spent on Dagobah and like how did time move on Dagobah? Like how long was the training process? How long did everybody else experience it? Uh, the trip that it took to get to Bespin. And like, was so hang on a second. Are you saying time moves at a different pace on Dagobah for Luke? There's been theories of that. Yeah. That's interesting. That people kind of think that Luke could have been there a lot longer than it looked like. That's one criticism people have always had with Dagobah is that it seems like Luke comes back to Bespin and he's picked up this like fairly, uh, fairly in-depth set of preliminary Jedi skills for having only been gone for a weekend or whatever. Uh, but just in watching this 20, I noticed they really threw us into the Jedi training pretty quickly. Like in one scene, they're arguing with Ben Kenobi over whether or not he can even even if he's eligible to be a Jedi, they have some disgusting stew. Mm. And then the next scene, Backpack Yoda's happening. Yeah, <laughs> Backpack Yoda. Uh, I don't know. I think it's it's something that we all forget in Star Wars is how long space travel is. Right. Is the fact that sometimes when we see them all in the Falcon and it looks like it's like not much time has passed or like 10 minutes has passed, a month could have just passed. Yeah. And space travel is something that, although they have like hyperspace, like hyperspeed, and that's fine, but y there is a certain element that things take longer than they appear. Now, there's an interesting parallel that occurs with the introduction of the Yoda character, uh, in that I, I don't think I ever realized this before, but he is seen on camera for the first time within the same 10 minute period as we first are introduced to Emperor Palpatine. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you have such prominent characters who are so powerful in the force that they parallel each other quite well and both being introduced at the same time yeah like one is like the 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 godfather of good and the other guy is the the godfather of bad so the and correct me if i'm wrong but the palpatine thing is one of the things that george lucas kind of updated for the re-releases i can't remember a time when i saw another iteration of this palpatine yeah, so it initially was an old lady with chimpanzee eyes superimposed in the place of what Palpatine was, uh, and they had someone else voice it as well. So it was this total like smorgasbord, and they didn't really have a plan for the Emperor as much at that point. Uh, and so, yes, they went back, and then they changed a few things. And I believe as well in the original version, there is no mention of the whole offspring of Anakin Skywalker element. They just treat Luke as Luke Skywalker and as if Vader knows. So it, it's cool that they add that different sort of level in where uh, em the Emperor is the one who tells Vader that, in fact, the guy he's looking for and this rebel Jedi is, in fact, his son. We have a new enemy, the young rebel who destroyed the Death Star. I have no doubt this boy is the offspring of Anakin Skywalker. Did you find that Vader's reaction to that was kind of, uh, excuse the pun, lukewarm? Like, I, I mean, I know he's always <laughs> kind of even keeled, but like, he was just like, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He doesn't really react a whole lot, but I'm, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, he's, he's more machine than man now. Well, um, and if he were to react too much, it would uh, it would spoil what is at this point in the, the viewing process supposed to be a secret. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if, if it's something that's a massive like revelation to him, then we're like, okay, why is this so important to Vader? Was Vader close to Anakin? Was Vader Anakin? Uh, right. So they kind of, I guess, 
that was probably the reason as to why they cut the line initially. Um, and I'm, I don't know why I'm remembering it that way. That might totally not be the case. I didn't do my research on whether or not uh, that line was in uh, the original release of it, but I, I believe it wasn't. What is Palpatine out there doing? Like, he's just on some other Imperial ship, for some reason not in the same place as Vader, because, like, the president and the vice president, they're not allowed to fly together? Um, probably to a degree, but I think a little bit on the most, the more side of things is the fact that Palpatine didn't really want to be engaged with anybody. He was very much recluse later in life as the emperor, and he had done all of his, I guess, charming of everyone in the galaxy and just went off in kind of his own missions to do whatever the hell he wanted. When he had complete control, it was just about kind of setting the, the policies in place as to how he wanted the galaxy run. Uh, Palpatine had a lot of obsessions with the Outer Rim and about discovering what could be out there and some people have theorized that Snoke is in fact what uh, Palpatine was searching for because he felt a strong pull of the dark side from the Outer oh. Rims. Yeah, so there's potential okay. that there could be something cool where that is what links Snoke to the uh, the rest of the, the saga because there really is no other link other than he's this guy who tried to manipulate Kylo Ren and we don't know where he came from. I mean, there uh, are a million different reasons it's a good thing that J.J. Abrams is coming back to finish off this, this trilogy that's currently underway, but like the resolution of the Snoke storyline is one of the things I'm most looking forward to because that, and I, I'm definitely uh, an apologist for The Last Jedi. You and I are on the same page. Like, I think that it's a fabulous film, but the as satisfying as Snoke's death is, I am not satisfied by that being the end of his story. No, I agree. I mean, we need more. And whether that's going to come through comics or books, I mean, it's it's interesting, but I think Snoke's absence there's enough of a fan demand that that needs to be solved through a film. We need some form of closure from that in episode nine. And I like Snoke's death. I, I loved everything about the death. Oh, and yeah. I like the I like the timing of it. I think it works well in the sense of Kylo's put in a position where now he has to rise to something that Vader never did. Vader was never in charge. Palpatine had him under his thumb, like we see here. I mean, Vader is so adamant about... Um, but pursuing them through the asteroid field. But as soon as he hears that Palpatine wants to talk to him, he's like, oh, let's get out of this asteroid field. I need to make clear communication with my master. So right. he's he's still like Palpatine's bitch at this point. And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how Kylo Ren will react as the one in charge. And maybe he won't be. Maybe after five years, Hux will have put in place enough where it like he's the one in no. charge and Kylo I, I agree it's probably not as likely no. however I do think and I heard I saw this on Reddit somewhere someone had a really cool theory and I absolutely love it would be if Hux was planning with the Knights of Ren to turn on Kylo so that he was he would he chose someone who he could manipulate within the Knights of Ren to be right. like an overthrower and just try and get at Kylo that way kind of making Kylo like a third side so you have like the the first order uh, Kylo Ren and then the resistance and so he's like almost an island as an individual so I think that could be a cool angle that they would play uh, well and but he's he, emotionally an island isn't he he really is and the Knights of Ren is something I'd like to see wrapped up uh, in or at least just expanded on a little bit because we really know nothing about them other than one line and what we assume is a flashback that is showing them uh, so it'd be interesting if we could get a little bit more context on that scene as well. And like, what did, like, what's the concept of that force vision? Why did Ray envision herself being, um, I guess, almost hunted down and killed by one of the Knights of the Ren? I think it's very well established already that Hux is not going to ultimately overpower 
Kylo Ren. But what's interesting and the distinction between uh, Kylo Ren and Vader and then say Snoke and Palpatine is that Snoke and Palpatine are, are just really ruling from a position of very controlled evil. Like they, yep. they just have like a very calculated, frankly, very rational approach to uh, overthrowing the galaxy. Whereas uh, the, the force sensitive ones and especially Kylo towards the end of the last Jedi is uh, he is governing through evil, but through passionate evil. Like what is really motivating him is, uh, uh, is fury and emotion. And that's not really something we ever really see in, in Snoke or Palpatine. No, that's definitely true. And that's kind of an interesting take to see it as he could potentially lead in a different way. And potentially the, the galaxy that we see it, maybe it's not as much in turmoil under Kylo Ren's leadership versus Snoke. Maybe it's a little bit more of a gray galaxy that we're given. And no, Hux yeah. would never overthrow Kylo, but <laughs> Kylo is someone who is completely ruled by his emotions, and Hux could absolutely make a calculated play to work with someone to overthrow Kylo. I mean, he couldn't do it himself because he's a bit of a little bitch, and that's essentially the yeah. goal that, that they try and portray Hux as. But I definitely don't... I, I think there's more to Hux uh, that could be explored in Episode Nine in making him a much more prominent villain of this trilogy than he currently is to this point. Because, I mean, we've lost Phasma and we've lost Snoke. And Kylo is this character that, although he's definitely on the villainous side of things, there is this pull to the light that we as fans also see, too. I mean, it's to a degree, we don't want him given the same sort of negative or the same sort of death as what we've got with Snoke. We want something a little bit more emotional or impactful. So it's yeah. interesting to see what could potentially happen with that. But that, like you said, that's kind of up to JJ. And it's nice that we get to see his vision uh, fully executed in the end. I thought the phrasing of the admiral, uh, the admiral coming in and kind of disturbing Vader to report that uh, Palpatine, the Emperor, wishes to speak with him. I thought the phrasing of that was very interesting because, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but it's it's something to the effect of, "Yes, Admiral, what is it? The Emperor commands you to make contact with him." There's something almost uh, commanding about the way this admiral is talking to Vader, and not in like a Tarkin way, but it's as if he understands. Look, you might be my boss, but I know this guy is your fucking boss, so don't fuck this up. Yeah, well, the Emperor is someone who, as, as much as everybody has fear of Vader, the Emperor is terrifying because right. he is the one in charge. He bosses Vader around, and it's very apparent at certain times. Um, but Vader is kind of the face. He's like you said, I think you compared him a little bit to Uncle Sam before, and that's that's kind of an interesting way of putting it. Um, whereas Palpatine is is definitely more of the the Dick Cheney, the the evil behind <laughs> b behind the curtain, right? I'm not going to give him a Wizard of Oz sort of comparison here, although <laughs> Palpy is pretty awesome. Before we move off of Vader in that particular moment, I I think uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't at least acknowledge that scene where we see the helmet coming down mechanically on top of Vader's uh, horribly mutilated scalp. Uh, I think I think that is one of the most important shots in all of Star Wars. Like I think up until then, like it, certainly the first time that was shown to people, it must have completely changed so many people's perception on the entire series. Well, that's a really good point because there wasn't Reddit or different sort of chat rooms and forums where people could speculate, oh, is Vader a robot? Is Vader, is Vader a person? But I guess at this particular point, 
there was nothing necessarily convincing everyone like what exactly Vader was. And he has a human head. He is clearly yeah. a human at his core. And we see this insanely disgusting, yellowish, bubbly scar. I mean, the deforming, it, it's, it's quite gross. And it actually, I think they did an exceptional job of that in Revenge of the Sith, was yeah. really giving him the scarring that we see in the original trilogy and in a believable way. So I think that's kind of right. cool. And, and you're right in the sense that it humanizes Vader to a level. And it also kind of foreshadows as well the the Luke, I am your father, the no, I am your father moment. Because really, I mean, if that comes out of totally left field, we don't even know he's necessarily a human. And then right after we get the moment uh, with Palpatine, it, it layers some nice things setting up to that twisty moment at the end. You and I have talked before, though, about how the, the fascinating thing about that reveal is it's as you say it is kind of intimate uh it humanizes vader but it's also menacing like it's it's mm. it shows you it 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 makes the the mass that is uh darth vader as a, a beast all the more fascinating and all the more complicated and it's showing him in a weakened state mm. and yet somehow it makes him tougher yeah absolutely it's it's weird where you have like he's showing vulnerability and that makes him more of a badass somehow. I mean, yeah, like, that's what's great about Vader. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of explain or put your finger on it because he's just so damn menacing in the way that mm. he presents himself. But to see that there is a man under this, that there is a person who is this intense and is clearly battling through pain on a constant basis, it, it's interesting. And it does add more credit to the fact that Vader is a sympathetic villain, but he's just one that we don't necessarily sympathize as much as we do with Kylo because of the way the original trilogy shot. I mean, if you shot it in the same way that you shoot the sequel trilogy where you're seeing like the conflict within Kylo, you I think you'd see some of that within Vader and not necessarily conflict because Vader definitely went deeper into the dark side than Kylo is. But you may see a little bit more of the human side of him. Uh, so it, I think it's just kind of an interesting angle because up until this point, Vader hasn't been a human. He has been like a plot device. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about some quotes. What are I actually didn't find this to be an especially uh, quotable 20, although the dialogue is really good, and it was a particularly chatty 20. Mm. Um, and certainly, I mean, Yoda is endlessly quotable that's the whole point of him but just in general i thought there were fewer meme quotes in this 20 yeah there were fewer typical sort of star wars quotes but there were some incredible lines and like you said the dialogue the back and forths uh literally every line between han and leia is great and every line ever uttered by yoda is great um, yeah the whole the whole back and forth between han and leia where uh he's like He's like horning in on her and she's kind of pushing it back and she's like, don't, my hands are dirty. He's like, my hands are dirty too. What are you afraid of? Like the whole scene is good writing and it's super steamy, um, but I don't really think of it when I think of Star Wars. I could never uh, like recap that conversation for you. No, and there are some really good lines in there as well, like uh, Captain being held by you isn't quite enough to get me excited. Uh, like Leia saying that to Han and like not entirely stable I'm glad you're here to say these things saying that to like 3PO <laughs> so I mean it's just great banter that Han and, and 3PO as well should be included within there uh, although he's the third wheel hardcore 
uh, and the cock blocker of the situation, he's yep. he's he's definitely has some really good lines um, while inside the giant space slug. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, Chewie take the professor to the back and plug him into the hyperdrive. I thought like that's a great three PO nickname that he never gets again. The professor. Yeah, that is. That's a good point. Uh, scoundrel. We get the scoundrel. Scoundrel. I like the sound of that from Han, which is good. Yeah. And you like me because I'm a scoundrel. There aren't enough scoundrels in your life. So yeah, they have a great back and forth. Uh, but this is definitely the twenty of Yoda because right. there is just so much. There's just everything that comes out of the little green man's vo- like mouth is great. Uh, much anger in him, like his father. Yeah, uh, ready are you? What know you of ready? For eight hundred years, I have I trained Jedi. My own counsel will I keep on who is to be trained. A Jedi must have the deepest commitment, the most serious mind. This one, a long time have I watched. All his life he looked away, to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was. Hmm. He was doing. Uh, <laughs> what he was doing. Hmm. Adventure. Heh. Excitement. Heh. A Jedi not craves these things. You are reckless. Like, everything yeah. that comes out of Yoda, it, like, it's just a great lesson. And there's so much that even they picked from that that they used to extrapolate even in the prequels. Like, my own counsel will I keep on who is to be trained. And the fact that there's the whole element of when they decided whether Anakin would be trained and the fact that Qui-Gon was so adamant about it, but Yoda and Mace Windu said no. And the fact that Yoda's using the same reasons that he doesn't want to train Luke, that he didn't want to trade Anakin. And so right, it's, but what's it's interesting quite interesting. About, what's interesting about that is that Yoda was correct in the case of Anakin Skywalker. Like, he was. Qui-Gon had, Qui-Gon had good intentions, and he was, of course, right to see something special in Anakin. But what Yoda sensed in him was fear. And sure enough, mm-hmm. they, sh- they should never have trained Anakin Skywalker. It was a bad thing. But his hesitations, which, uh, by the way, are even all the more validated after he was so right so many years ago... Um, his hesitations about Luke are exactly the same, and he's wrong because Luke has a purer heart. Yes, that's true. However, I think there's also, and there's so many different ways in which you could theorize it, but I think under Qui-Gon Jinn, Anakin would have been a very different Jedi, and we could have potentially had an entirely different end to how this entire saga went. If Qui-Gon doesn't die, what's it like Anakin being trained by someone who's more of a father figure than a brother figure? And Obi-Wan being very different from Anakin and being very by the book, whereas Qui-Gon didn't necessarily play by the rules or do what the council always wanted. It potentially could have been a totally different scenario. But you're definitely right in the sense that Luke... Yoda's absolutely wrong on Luke, and the fact that he wanted to train Leia as opposed to training Luke even shows that. Uh, And from a certain point of view, they they dive into that a little bit more and how he has a conversation with... um, with Force Ghost Obi-Wan and how he specifically wants to train Leia, Leia saying, like, she has the right temperament, but Luke Luke doesn't. And even in that, like, always looking to the horizon, never on where he was, and seeing, like, he's just a dreamer. He doesn't have the patience just like Anakin. So it's really interesting how much they built out from even one quote, three whole damn movies. Yeah, and, like, I, in a way, Leia is more uh, mature than Luke, Uh Professionally Defin- speaking, definitely milita- militaristically speaking, but she's also kind of cynical. She's kind of cynical for like a nineteen-year-old, uh, and I don't know if that's really conducive to the Jedi way. That's fair. I wouldn't say she's necessarily cynical. We see a lot of attitude from Leia, but Leia is only linked to Han in this movie. 
and yeah. Han and Han only linked to Leia, excluding the kind of opening sequence um, at, on Hoth. But like everything that happens with Leia in this movie is related to what happens with Han, and because there's that kind of like sexual tension with them and her being frustrated by him. Hey, your worship, I'm only trying to help. Would you please stop calling me that? Sure, Leia. So difficult sometimes. I do, I really do. It, we see her as being, I think, more pissed off in this movie than she really is. Because I think in A New Hope, I mean, yeah, she had attitude for sure, but she wasn't as cynical. And by the time Return of the Jedi comes around, she's she's a damn optimist. She thinks she can rescue Han from Jabba, so. True, true. And she's really just, maybe, maybe cynical's not fair. She's just kind of all business. That's definitely true. Very serious. Not much uh, lightheartedness in her, but old school Jedi were like that. They were super yeah. like think of think of Mace Windu. I mm-hmm. mean, he he's a cold bastard, but by the books, he's a phenomenal Jedi. He stands for everything the Jedi stands for. Him and him and Yoda, although they do it wrong, and that's what's great about Luke is that he does it in kind of a different way. And I've mentioned this before. Luke's a giant fuck up. Luke does so so many things. Like he just he makes so many mistakes left, right, and center. But that's what makes him relatable. So I found it kind of interesting the way, and they say this a couple of times in this twenty that three uh, PO's job is to have a dialogue with the Falcon. Like something's wrong with it, mechanically speaking. In fact, the power coupling on the negative axis is paralyzed and it needs to be replaced. It's it's kind of 3PO's job to diagnose the Falcon through some kind of conversational means. I'm gonna shut down everything but the emergency power systems. Sir, I'm almost afraid to ask, but does that include shutting me down too? No, I need you to talk to the Falcon, find out what's wrong with the hyperdrive. And so like, we know that he speaks the languages of other machines, but we don't very often hear of ships referred to uh, like they're droids in Star Wars. Yeah, that's a cool point, and that's something I never really really thought about before. Uh, when I guess Astromax, they would communicate with ships uh, in kind of a more subtle way, like beep, beep, beep. But I guess because 3PO speaks English as well, one of his six million languages, we find it weird that he can also communicate with machinery and droids. But I guess yes. it, it, it seems pretty logical. I don't know of another instance in which it's done so deliberately in Star Wars. But it's that's a, that's a really interesting point that I've never really thought about, and that he can have a conversation as easily with Chewbacca as with Han as with the Falcon itself. Do you suppose Frank Oz was also the man behind the weird space slug thing? Because it kind of <laughs> looks like a person's arm in some kind of like nylon tube. Probably uh, the Exagorth is the name of the giant space slug. <laughs> It's a giant, it's, it's, bad. Sil- it's a silicon sock, basically, that's, like you said, probably has someone's hand up inside it. It's not exactly the best practical effects, but the asteroids no, I, are the way, are easily the worst part of this, easily the take back when it comes to um, production value. Well, and interestingly, usually Star Wars, and I don't know if they were pioneers in this, I think, I think maybe they were, this fascinating, this fascinatingly simple idea of doing something that's enormous on a very small scale and just filming it up close to make it look like it's big. Like they pull Mm. that off with like true movie magic in Star Wars. But you're right, the asteroid field in this particular 20 and also the the exo slug uh, just do not look real at all. 
No, they're pretty bad. And the Minox also look like kites. It's pretty, like, they're, they're pretty terrible as well. It just looks like someone flew a kite into the Millennium Falcon and they're screaming about it. Uh, those and those bat, bat things that are kind of flying around inside the stomach of the slug when the when the falcon's in there. You're right. And they don't really show them direct on. So like there's well, clearly somebody off to the side holding a wire. Yeah. And then there's also like kind of like this foamy, like weird mouth that they have on them. They're, they're pretty gross, but they're definitely a, a weird part of the... Uh, um, of the scene and it's also pretty interesting when Chewie aims right for them trying to shoot them and then gives up their position inside the Exocorp <laughs> shoots yeah. the inside of his mouth and then Han shoots him twice again well that's the thing Han like you watch on Han's face as he realizes that they're probably inside something living and not a cave and he decides to test this theory by shooting what's beneath his feet which is a little silly yeah, it's not exactly the best call. <laughs> okay, yeah, I don't really have any more quotes uh, other than I guess there was a little bit of, uh, I mean, the back and forth between Vader and the Emperor is classic Star Wars. The search your feelings, Lord Vader, you will know it to be true. Uh, if he could be turned, he could be a powerful ally. Yeah, no, those are excellent lines. And then, I mean, there's the big Vader line at the end. Um, uh, he will join us or die. I mean, that is such classic Vader that, I mean... <laughs> He really just he can he can get away with such menacing lines that really always just he's not saying a whole lot that's interesting but he can definitely get away with being as badass as possible. Right, but the emperor didn't. Basically, the emperor just finished telling him. By the way, this is your son, and he did not ask Vader to to say he will kill him if he needs to. Vader just offers that up. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good point. I guess he knows what's the what's the case, and at this point, maybe he's already starting to think, oh, well, shit, maybe this is my opportunity to run the galaxy the way I want to, and it may not be my wife. No, I think it's more likely that he just thinks, oh, well, I can turn my son. Like, I, th I don't think Vader anticipates it's going to be as hard to turn Luke as it turns out to be. He could destroy us. He's just a boy. Obi-Wan can no longer help him. The Force is strong with him. The son of Skywalker must not become a Jedi. All right, so uh, thanks for listening to uh, another episode of Recorder 66. If you'd like to send us some feedback, you can tweet us at Recorder66, or you can email us, Recorder66podcast at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to listen to the fourth 20-minute segment of Empire Strikes Back, so watch the first 80 minutes of that movie if you want to be caught up, caught up to us. Uh, and then by then, we're only going to be uh, hours away from seeing Solo, so we're going to be really amped up in next week's pod, I think. I definitely think so. All right, man. Uh, thanks for your time. Uh, I'll see you soon, and uh, you know what to say. May the Force be with you. Bye.